Hello, my name is Christian. I'm heading the company building unit 431 of Porsche Digital. And I'm delighted to be here in the room with Tim Leberrecht. And he's the co-founder, co-CEO and co-creator of the House of Beautiful Business. Hi, Christian. Hi. Great to be back. Yeah, welcome back to a brand new episode of the second season of Next Visions and House of Beautiful Business podcast. So we described already there have been a lot of changes since last year, but also with this new podcast season two. So Tim, actually, what has changed since last time? We are at what we call Tucholsky Palace is a, um, yeah, it's a kind of a nickname for our office, essentially. We're sitting in the lounge and um, we are about to hear the second episode of the Next Visions Seasons 2. And it's a conversation between Casper de Kill and Lian Alguzain. And one thing that really has been a theme of the second season is that the themes have become more extreme. The pairings have become more extreme. The idea of Next Visions is that two people meet. In this case, in this season, they met online for the first time uh, without any preparation. And they had a conversation, an impromptu conversation. So part of the fascination of this is also to listen to how do they actually conduct a conversation in the first place. The theme of this conversation is the sacred and the profane or the sacred in the profane, if, mm -hmm. if you will. And it's a conversation with Casper to Kill. Casper is the author of um, the book, The Power of Ritual. Um, he's also a co-founder of the Sacred Design Lab, that is a research and design consultancy that's working to create a culture of belonging and becoming, as he puts it. He's a ministry innovation fellow, ministry innovation fellow, that is a title that I'm <laughs> quite jealous of, at the Harvard Divinity School. So his themes are spirituality, how to bring spirituality into the workplace. There was actually a New York Times article uh, lately that featured him and other um, spirituality consultants. Um, he also co-hosts the award-winning podcast, Harry Potter and the Sacred Text. And a few years ago, he co-authored a book that was called How We Gather. And he's in conversation with Niana Alguzain. Niana is the founder of The Scribes. And she is a writer, teacher, and cultural organizer from Kuwait. By the way, that's also interesting that Casper is in Brooklyn mm -hmm. while having this conversation and Liana is in Kuwait. Of course, that's possible when you do these remote conversations. Liana is originally from Beirut, Lebanon, um, and she dedicated her work as a cultural critic to the sacred and the profane. And the way we found her was actually quite curious. Like a friend of us told us about a talk that she had held at a conference in Beirut about poop about the cultural history of, yes, poop. Okay. Um, so can't get more profane than that. Um, <laughs> and maybe we just stop right there and listen to the conversation. Yeah, thank you, Tim, Minister of House of Food of a Business. Add a further title in future. Now I'm really curious because, and it, it's really an extreme in comparison to season one with talking about poop and the, <laughs> and the sacred. So listen into the new episode. Hi, I'm Leanne. I'm currently in Kuwait, pretty close to the sea, actually. It's quite hot here. It's 43 degrees Celsius currently and just past 5 p.m. And I am in my light-filled studio. Hi, everyone. I'm Kasper Terkail. I'm in Brooklyn, New York, where we've had a pretty interesting last couple of months, and it's uh, thankfully a little calmer right now as cases of COVID are declining here in the city. Uh, but I'm in my apartment. So excited to talk to you, Leanne, about this, uh, this question of the sacred and the profane. Same. It's an honor. 
And I've brought out my tarot cards and <gasps> my incense and all of the <laughs> the yes. woo-woo tools. I just set up my schedule for the month. So I've been giving tarot readings. I was very inspired in lockdown to try and raise money for charity through tarot readings. And now they've kind of taken off. Wow. So we can play with some tarot if you like. A hundred percent. I mean, I feel like this is really something the kind of COVID experience has really shifted a lot of people's attention towards spirituality in an interesting way. We recently saw some data of young people, Gen Zs in America, 46% of them had tried a new spiritual practice since the beginning of quarantine. So I think this is a, a moment in which people are exploring maybe new practices, maybe reading more spiritual texts. So I'm excited to learn about your tarot practice. Yeah, and I think it overlaps with what you do with Harry Potter. I've been obsessed with the idea and the practice of bibliomancy for a while. So yes. kind of channeling the flow of the universe into the, the page of the book that you open or the tarot card that you find. It's such an interesting history because I think there's so many practices around text, especially, that have helped people make meaning or find answers or recognize truth that maybe we've lost touch with a little bit in the kind of modern <laughs> in the modern world. But I'd love to learn more about your your practices that are artistic but also spiritual. Can you tell us a little bit about how the how those two sit together in your work? Yeah. Um, so I got into Sufism a couple of years ago and started studying the 99 names of God, mm. uh, of Allah. And I found that a lot of people were interested in this practice of repeating the 99 names mm -hmm. and pairing and repairing them. So a bunch of musicians came over. We started uh, chanting and singing the names together. So that that's one practice that's kind of developed uh, pretty recently for me. So finding things, like collecting things that are spiritually charged in one place and then yeah. kind of picking them at random and opening them up uh, over and over to interpretation and reinterpretation, right? Yeah, absolutely. And for people who aren't familiar with Islam, the 99 names is God the most merciful, God the beloved, right? All of these different descriptions yeah. of what the experience of God is. And there's some that are um, that can sound quite negative, like the humiliator. Yeah. You know? Yes, yes, the judger. About, yeah, but then it's about your ego, right? And keeping your ego uh -huh. in check. And and I found that the ego is something that a lot of religions grapple with. So for mm -hmm. you as a divinity scholar, um, <laughs> how do you experience ego across religions? Yeah, it's so interesting. So my, my background is as a formerly a student at Harvard Divinity School and now a research fellow, where I really think about the kind of trends of how religion is changing, specifically in the United States. And I love this, that you point to this relationship between spiritual practices and our kind of egoic selves. One of my favorite wisdom teachers, who's a, a Franciscan friar, so he's mm. a Catholic priest called Richard Raw. he says he prays every day for a daily humiliation. So very connected of what you were just saying, because so much of our, our lives are oriented around building up our sense of power, importance, you know, wealth, like, you know, all of these ways in which our ego grows. And so often, I think, for people with power, a really important spiritual practice is one in which our egos are right-sized. And this is why 
the experience of wonder, you know, whether you're looking at a beautiful forest or a night sky or a newborn baby or a beautiful piece of art, wonder mm. is such a powerful experience because the impact it has on our brains is that it helps us feel connected to something bigger, but it also forces us to reassess our relationship with the world around us. So it kind of, it it, it punctures the ego balloon, you know, <laughs> and I we go that. back to being right-sized. And yeah, not to say is- that we should disappear, right? Because I think it's also not about saying that we are nothing and we are worthless, right? It's not all the way there, but it's about finding like the Goldilocks middle. It's the right middle place between inflated and deflated. It's like perfectly flated ego. <laughs> I love that. Yeah, there's there's a book that actually talks about the alienated versus the inflated ego. It's called mm. uh, Ego and Archetype. Sorry, my I'm looking around to, 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 to see it. <laughs> and it's by someone called Edward Edinger. And he, he oh, does wonderful. a lot of biblical references. And I'm thinking too about wonder and, and how you get goosebumps. Mm-hmm. Uh, I grew. I know that you sing uh, as as a spiritual practice, right? Yeah. And I grew up in choirs my entire life, ah. and I'm just thinking about that feeling of like the hair standing up on your neck yeah. or the goosebumps that you get from when voices harmonize. Yeah. And if we even know why that happens, like it just feels like such a, a God moment. I'm so with you. And it's really for me the moment in my my own practice when I forget about my own, <laughs> like my own brain. You know, mm-hmm. like I'm just, I, 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 singing with other people, it's one of the most powerful ways for me to feel connected to something bigger. In part, because especially as you pointed out, the harmony is not something you can ever create on your own. You know, you need each right. other. And I think one of the one of the things I'm interested in as we think about spiritual practices and the way in which the kind of the sacred lives in the modern world is sometimes that the focus is really just on the individual. You know, it's about your well-being or your, you know, your retreat or it, it, it can become very individualist. And what I love about singing with other people is that it naturally broadens that practice to the community. And so we're oriented towards one another rather than just ourselves, which I I need, I know for sure. No, that's great. Yeah. I think a lot of spirituality is about holding tension between opposites Uh, and to bring it back. There's one of the two of the names that we chant together. So lots of them are um, qualities and opposition, but yeah, so to be one and to be unified Mm. uh, at the same time and to have both of those qualities held together. And circling back even to the name of our talk today, the sacred and the profane. Yes, um, both of those intention exactly. Mm-hmm. To hold them, oh, I love that. To get yeah, everything intention and and with awareness, and to make the ego big and small, to make to be an individual and part of a community, mm. to rest and to act, the uh, middle way, t- right? That's right. And we say it as if it's easy to do. <laughs> no, yeah. <laughs> like, oh, yeah, no big deal. <laughs> Just going to yo-yo my way through life here. <laughs> exactly. Would you tell us a little bit, Leanne, just how, you know, how spirituality or religion has been part of your life? You know, you mentioned a kind of a discovery or a deepening of Sufism in the last few years. Did you grow up with Islam being an important part of your upbringing? Um, that's interesting, yeah. So my family is Palestinian and moved to Kuwait probably in the 50s. And they, um, I think we, uh, within the GCC or the, the Arab Gulf, are, are um, c- perceived as more liberal. Yeah. Uh, so I grew up with a very conservative Islam that never felt like it was mine culturally. Mm. But then I watched my father discover Islam kind of very privately. 
never to do with pressure or anyone else, never asked us to do anything. And I watched it center and ground him in a, in a really beautiful way. And he's, you know, he comes and, and goes with his rituals. But for yeah, so I think for me, it was, it was about watching someone really surrender and, mm. and in a way that was so personal. It was very formative. And then to kind of, to spend, uh, you know, university years really grappling with a lot of ideas about shame and guilt. Mm-hmm. Um, and also, I think it's maybe why I'm fascinated with uh, questions of human sexuality is, is yes. because it was so taboo. And then to kind of come to go deep into the sense of being a heathen, right? And then to come (laughs) back out of it and to integrate in a way the shame to be more body. I don't even like the word body positive, but like body neutral. (laughs) Mm, mm, Just embodied, yeah. Uh Uh-huh, embodied, that's it. Yeah. It's so, I love that you point us to this question of sexuality and religion. I'm gay, and so I've always been, you know, my first experiences with with religion were really negative. Um, I didn't grow up in a religious household. My parents are both Dutch. And I think together with Denmark, Holland is like the most secular country in the world. <laughs> so it's, it's just very absent, you know, from certainly in my family's life, you know, we didn't go to church, there was no conversation about God. And yet, when I look at my upbringing now, I went to a school called a, a Waldorf school or a Steiner school, which has a lot of focus on rituals and community and singing together. And, you know, uh, we, we would go and sing to the barnyard animals on Christmas Eve to wish them a Merry Christmas. There was still a lot mm-hmm. of beautiful community rituals, even though it wasn't officially religious. So I look back now and I actually see the spirituality. But officially, when, when I was growing up, there was no identity, you know. And so growing up, I felt like religion was either irrelevant or it was cruel. You know, mm-hmm. I didn't I didn't see any value in it. And it's really since growing up and ending up in divinity school where I was interested in, you know, what are the ways in which human beings make meaning? What are the strategies through which we can have a different, richer kind of conversation? You know, what really makes life worth living? These are questions that religious communities have always been thinking about. You know, how do you live a good life? And that feels still so relevant, even if some of the you know, maybe the traditional doctrines or the structures of the community don't appeal to me in the same way. So what turned you towards a spiritual or religious community? (laughs) Yeah, that's a great question. I was a climate activist. So Mm. I was really involved in mobilizing young people on climate change, especially around the UN negotiations on climate. And, you know, we had these international networks where we had young people from India and Canada and Australia and Indonesia, you know, collaborating on pushing the global talks around climate change. And in 2009, there were these big talks in Copenhagen in Denmark, and I was there with hundreds of young people. And the talks didn't yield to the results that we had hoped for. They were not as strong as we wanted them to be. And I felt like I had failed. You know, I felt so, as 21-year-old, 22-year-old, I felt so responsible. And I felt like I had failed. And I looked at the kind of great movement leaders, the great social justice leaders of history, and I kept seeing some sort of spirituality or some sort of religious practice in their life. And I thought, maybe there's something here. Maybe there's something there. Because you can't just change the world with policies or even politics. When it's a problem like climate change, where it's so global, it's really about shifting a paradigm. 
you know, how we understand who we are and who we're in relationship with. What's our relationship with the natural world? Is nature over there or are we part of nature? This way of thinking shapes what we think is possible. And so I, I really was interested in who's been, who's been thinking about how do you shape people's way of thinking? <laughs> and I was like, well, religion. And so I ended up in divinity school. And it's been a wonderful way, I think, for me to marry my interest in social change with a passion for community building and personal transformation. That's beautiful. So kind of shifting even our accountability to one another through the lens of spirituality to enact climate change. Yeah, exactly. Because I think when we don't think of spirituality as something that's just, you know, happening in the sky and some like magical jukebox where you send your prayers, you know, but when we understand one another to be so deeply connected that none of us can be free and healthy until all of us are, then you shift the way in which you start to think about policy. And so for me, it's a very profound social change strategy. That's one of the reasons why I've become so passionate about it. Um, so you're making me think about, um, in terms of connectivity and connecting to nature, the book, How to Change Your Mind on Psychedelics. Yes. And removing kind of all of these walls and filters that we've built to keep nature out and how psychedelics could really enact the kind of change that we are looking for on a global scale. It's um, fascinating. Yeah, this mm-hmm. is really a growing trend. I think more and more people are exploring, you know, whether it's in ayahuasca ceremonies or other forms of plant medicine. I think people are excited and interested in having experiences of feeling that greater connection. I have some questions about the you know, the appropriateness, honestly, of like white Western people adopting indigenous practices without a real intentionality and relationship. But that's a different conversation. Oh, totally. Totally. (laughs) Like really irresponsible tourism, basically. Yes, exactly. That spiritual tourism. Yeah. I mean, especially I'm curious for you as you kind of weave together, I mean, you mentioned tarot, you mentioned Sufism, like what, what does your kind of spiritual practice look like now? Yeah, I mean, it's definitely rough in quarantine. Yeah. And I do think the tarot is essentially like, does feel like holding like a kind of digital confessional space Mm. for people. And I do think that writing is very important at this time too, to like kind of cleanse or unload on the page, to like find some way to feel in the flow of life, even if you are Mm. completely sequestered in your monk cell. Uh, so doing a bit of like a yoga or meditation, you know, of course I would prefer to be more regular. It's just that I usually do yoga with people. And I think it's so much for me about that field, the electromagnetic field of breathing, sweating bodies. So that's been a struggle, but it's really put into perspective for me, my priorities and the things that I'm missing. Yeah. And how do, how's it been working for you? Yeah, I've been saying it's like a time of reckoning, you know, like we're all being forced to look at our lives and say, is this really what I want? You know, who Mm -hmm. are the people I want to spend time with? What's the way that I want to live? And it's like a mirror, you know, being held up. And what's been interesting for me is some of the research and the polling that's coming back. I know for the UK, most people don't want to go back to life as it was before quarantine. Like there are real things people want to change about their life. So I just find that fascinating. I hope so. I know, right? Yeah. (laughs) For me personally, I think the practices that have really sustained me 
through quarantine. Uh, one of them is my tech Sabbath. So really inspired by the Jewish tradition of Shabbat on Friday night, turning off my phone, turning off my laptop. I literally hide them in my bookshelf because otherwise, <laughs> otherwise I get too distracted, you know. But I light a candle and I sing a little song. And it's really a moment of it's like a big outbreath, you know. And Abraham Joshua Heschel, wonderful Jewish theologian of the 20th century, described the Sabbath as a palace in time. So I like to imagine, you know, although we can't mm. move across space during quarantine, we can move across time. And so if you imagine a sort of a palace in time, we get to enter into this beautiful, uh, this building. It's gorgeous. <laughs> in, in, it's like something right? out it's, of Salman Rushdie. Yes, exactly. That kind of mystical and imaginative. Oh, I love it. And it's um, and 24 so hours that you switch 24 off? hours. Yeah, 24 hours. I do my best. Sometimes it's a little shorter because it's tough. <laughs> but in Jewish tradition, one of the things I love is that they actually practice Sabbath for 25 hours hmm. because the Sabbath is so sweet that they want to hold on to it for one hour more. So I love discovering, you know, and learning about these traditions because I think in our modern world, which is so fast-paced, which is so oriented around the to-do list and, you know, all the goals that we have to build in time for rest, I think is so important. And not just to like rejuvenate for the work week, but to actually see rest as the point of the work week, right? Like we've worked so that we can have this time to be with our loved ones, to write a poem, to sing a song, to cook a favorite dish, to go for a long walk, right? Like this is what life is really about rather than just seeing it as like, okay, I'll recharge so I can go back at it on Monday. <laughs> true, true. But the, the thing that I'm always really inspired by is when we look back at history, the first thing to say is that these traditions have not been static. You know, they mm. have not remained the same. They are always changing. And we should not think that the, uh, at least this is my theological perspective, that an authentic expression of these traditions is not static, right? It should always be changing. That's when you see a healthy tradition is when it adapts and it responds and it invites and it creates rather than just like maintaining a particular way that it was because that's just historically inaccurate. So that's the first thing that I would say. And the second thing for me in my work, I'm always really interested in affirming the rituals that people have in their lives, the way in which they find meaning, you know, even if it's not in a traditional religious space, right? Like I've done a lot of research looking at how fitness communities, for example, or hmm. maker spaces or creative groups or justice groups actually fulfill a lot of the same things that you would expect to see in a religious community. They just don't use religious language. And that those can be, I think, potentially authentic expressions of tradition if we add people's experience now with some of the ancient wisdom. And so my job, as I think about it in the world, is to weave together the experience of today with the wisdom of our ancestors. You know I what I mean? That. Like, yeah. Because we, we're not the first persons to experience life. Like, we can learn things. <laughs> yeah, it's active knowledge. It's not yes. static knowledge. I exactly. guess also we come up against, like, the holy books, right? And you have the Old Testament, the New Testament. I mean, you have there are revisions to the books, or not revisions, but additions. But and then how do you yes. integrate like people's attachment to the book? Yeah, and I mean, I want to ask you the same question. <laughs> yeah, what what do you think? Yeah, I mean, it's interesting to see resistance against meditation in the Middle East because, like, kind of the elders are a bit weary that it could replace prayer. Mm -hmm, um, so that mm -hmm. distinction is constantly being harped on. 
And it's frustrating because I keep explaining that, you know, there are many ladders to God. Mm. And what are you doing looking at someone else's ladder? Like, so what mm-hmm. if it's a rope ladder or a staircase or an elevator or, you know, <laughs> they're getting, it's, it, they're ascending. It's like an elevator for one, you know? Yeah. But then you're also trying to intersect your spiritual practice with the practice of others because it deepens it so much. So it's this constant push and pull between like, you know, stay in your lane, Karen, with like, don't try and come, <laughs> come for my religious practice. But like, do you want to go to like Sufi circle together? You know? <laughs> yeah, totally. Yeah. Like, don't judge me. But but join me. But you you know like it's an interesting. Mm-hmm. It's a tough one. It's interesting to think about maybe comparing the American and the Middle Eastern experience, especially as meditation has spread so wildly. Because of course, when Westerners really kind of brought Buddhism to America, of course, together with Buddhist practitioners from uh, across the East it had a very similar reaction, right? Like it was seen to be taking people away from Judaism or Christianity. Mm. It was seen as very threatening. And then it was very secularized. And now it's everywhere, you know, in every office, in every HR, you know, workers support package, of course, things like Headspace (laughs) and Calm and all of these other things. And it's interesting to, to look at this moment as an example of that kind of religious change, because, you know, does this meditation still count as Buddhist? Mm. Is it purely secular? Is it just about, you know, noticing your body? So that I guess what I'm trying to say is it's very contested. You know, who gets to say what is religious and who gets to say what isn't religious? There's very different opinions. <laughs> yeah. And I we're constantly coming up against that in the yoga world. I teach yoga. Exactly. It's, it's like, well, do you, if you chanted it wrong, is it are you still communing with God? Uh, you know? <laughs> yeah. And is it cultural appropriation? But then it's essentially the same God through multiple cultural lenses. So should Mm. we be policing people so hard? Mm. But at the same time, you do see like super commercial iterations of spiritual practices and then your hackles rise. So, Mm. yeah, like there isn't a way to kind of instate a spiritual police, right? (laughs) I think or if your intention. We do, it's dangerous. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, totally. And they would get out of control, and <laughs> their like their egos would become like megaliths. Um, <laughs> but yeah, like I'm constantly in conflict about trying to make my spiritual practices mainstream, but then really like special and centered at the same time. Yeah, one of my favorite images because I think sometimes you know the idea that. God is the same thing in every tradition can be challenging mm-hmm. um, because there are, of course, real differences, you know, especially if you think about Buddhism's focus on emptiness and Christianity's real focus on presence. Like those mm-hmm. are very different languages or theologies. One of my favorite images for this is the idea that it's not, you know, one mountaintop into which everyone is walking, but that we're all standing on a shoreline pointing to an unknowable ocean, you know? Mm. So it's like, there is some sense of something that's shared, but like, we can't locate it precisely. And I found that such a helpful image to allow for that diversity, but also the universal experience of longing, right? That sense of being part of something bigger that maybe we don't always have language for. I like that. It makes me think of something I learned recently called uh, panpsychism. Mm, Tell me about that. Yeah, I actually... um, pulled up the definitions because I thought I might lose it. But it's kind of one of the older, um, it's an older idea, but that is kind of regaining popularity. Essentially, it's the idea that consciousness isn't part of life. It's part of the universe. So it's not because Mm. I'm a human that I have consciousness. 
but that consciousness is a kind of pre-existing matrix. Mm. A tree can be conscious, a stone can be conscious because it's part of the universe. That's beautiful. And then it's in direct kind of opposition to the, to dualism or materialism that are, you know, that directly oppose the mind and matter. Wow. Uh, like the mind is matter and matter is the mind. I really love this idea because it points us towards the fact that the body and the mind are one and mm. and that the body and the mind and the spirit too are together, right? So when we have those moments of ecstasy or delight or union, right? If, uh, hoping we're sometimes with yeah. another person. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> right, like it's a, it's a sense of the boundaries of the individual have been stretched. And so we feel connected in a way that, you know, I think, the, the language of God is a beautiful one to describe that moment because it's also, you know, it, it, I hope a moment of surrender, of release, a surrender of uh, um, a control, right? There's a, there's a real moment of um, letting go. I mean, this is what I love so much in the Islamic tradition mm. is that surrender and, and even submission to God are so at the center of that tradition. And it's about us letting go of our sense of, we have all the answers, you know, we know what to do. Absolutely, yeah. I mean, I feel like God is always beyond what you are working towards. Like the mysteriousness around God is so finite if you're going to think about it through the human mind. That's right. Yeah, our imagination can literally not imagine it. <laughs> yeah, and it's so anthropomorphized. Yeah. God, you know, uh -huh. Exactly, yeah. What do you think of when you think about the the kind of divine... You know, this idea of the sacred and the profane, the divine showing up in places that we would never go to look for it. Where do you see that, this mm. idea of the sacred and the profane? Yeah, so I was also thinking about like the, because my talk for House of Beautiful Business is supposed to be around poop. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah, I don't know if that <laughs> came up in a Google search for me or anything. <laughs> the poop girl. That's awesome. I love that. <laughs> my, um, my colleague talks about every spirituality has to have some element of blood and poop, like something very real, you know, like it's not all pretty Instagram filters. <laughs> and I'd love to know how like, you know, because essentially like poop is the first thing you create. It's your first mm. godlike act, you know, wow. Freud talks about this. And um, so, yeah, and you also kind of, the, the the bathroom is another one of these private spaces. It's another mm. space of surrender. I was doing some reading and I came across the term uh, poopphoria. So like, that's like the euphoria <laughs> once after you poop. <laughs> Leanne, I love this. We've covered sex, we've covered religion, and we've covered poop. This, this is just, amazing. <laughs> <yeah>. <laughs> Just the way my brain networks, you know. <laughs> <laughs> but so um, it's about finding kind of an experience of the divine in the bathroom. And and everywhere. Yeah. And not like being kind of hierarchical about our religious mm. experiences, our eureka moments, our, the way that we experience catharsis. That, that reminds me when you were speaking about um, the Buddhism and emptiness versus Christianity and presence. I was thinking about something I'd, I'd read about Eastern versus Western religion and how mm. Eastern religions were created by essentially people, wealthier classes, and Western religions came of the desert, came of nothing, right? Came from, mm. our, were poor men's religions. So the wealthy in the East were so sick of their like lives of luxury that they've kind of promised themselves, they promised mm. their followers nothingness. 
Mm. that you will be free of consciousness, which is like kind of perceived as the ultimate shackle, like desire. Right. In the case of Western religion, it's, uh, it promises an afterlife full of, you know, gardens and virgins and wine and the whole <laughs> thing, because it was almost like the, the mirage of the mm. desert. That's so striking. Yeah, you think of the Buddha's story towards enlightenment being one of, of renunciation, exactly. You know, growing up a prince and finding himself shackled by it and wanting to give that away. That's that's a striking analogy. Yeah. You know, and, and maybe one why we see people, you know, certainly in the West, you know, being drawn towards communities or practices that are, are maybe more influenced by by Buddhist culture and practice. You know, the retreat center where you go and you leave mm. everything behind, right? That sense that that you can go and get your dose. <laughs> Which I've done and it's and it's amazing, right? It is. But it is a privilege. Exactly. And I'm I'm always really interested. I really value those. You know, I, I really appreciate my time that I get to spend in a monastery. And but for me, it's really and I love that example of the bathroom, that it's about integrating the divine back into the everyday, you know, that it's not, we don't kind of put shackles around the divine as being something that has to be really exotic or, or, or complicated, but that it can be, you know, the moment before we share a meal, when we give thanks, the song that we sing, you know, together, all the moments that are so uncomplicated and yet mm. also so profound. And the moments between the moments like that, that inhale. <laughs> There's a yogi speaking. I can tell. <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I hear her too, actually. You're right. <laughs> That's funny. <laughs> One of the places that I've really seen that kind of divine in the everyday is um, in this podcast that I host, uh, the Harry Potter and the Sacred Text, where we read the Harry Potter books as if it is a sacred text. So it's not a book that we think of as entertainment or escape, but it's a book that helps us live more purposefully in the world. And in one way, of course, we didn't have to convince anyone of this because there's millions and millions of people who read mm. the Harry Potter books and, you know, maybe turn to those books after a breakup or maybe after the loss of a loved one or just at the beginning of every year, right? They reread these texts. And so what we did was to draw on the ancient wisdom of specific reading practices drawn from Christianity and Judaism. My co-host grew up uh, atheist Jewish. I have this Christian background. And to to kind of use those practices, those, those specific reading techniques, but to do it with Harry Potter. And what's been so striking is that for that, you know, many tens of thousands of people who listen to the show, they're like, oh my gosh, I didn't know that I could have a spiritual kind of practice that was based on a book that I loved. And that for me is so exciting when people feel a sense of permission and creativity and kind of, sp yeah, spiritual, cre yeah, creative Absolutely. permission to, yeah. you know, to engage with the life that they're living. And that's something I'm so passionate about. It makes me think of a game I would play with myself in high school where I would um, turn on like one pop English station and yes. I'd be like, well, whatever song is playing, like that's going to tell me how that boy feels about me. Or, oh, you know, like, yes. I, am I going to pass the exam if it's a happy song? I will, you know? <laughs> and then it was Backstreet Boys and you're like, yes. I want <laughs> it that Yeah, I do. Yeah, I do. <laughs> So, yeah, I mean, and we have like, you know, traditions in the Middle East where you you actually can tell uh, the future with shells, just little shells mm. that you throw and the way that they land, it tells you everything about your children and your future and all of that. It's basically just reading the way that the universe arranges itself around you. 
It's not yeah. about creating meaning. It's about reading the meaning. And that is already oh, I there. Love that. Yeah, and and in the Harry Potter books, I'm sure there's so many layers. And I'm I'm glad we circled back to Harry Potter because I've been meaning to ask you um, how you feel about J.K. Rowling in the news right now, uh, and this whole Dumbledore situation, this like retroactive, uh, like <laughs> queer, <laughs> imp- like I just the retroactiveness really bugs me. Like it just feels it's, like convenient. <laughs> it's oh, that's many, many, many things to say, Leanne. And and for listeners who maybe aren't familiar with this, J.K. Rowling, who who wrote the books has been very active in writing more stories later and having commentary about about the characters that she created, including saying, oh, did you know Dumbledore, this great kind of wizard and mentor to Harry, is gay? And then more recently, with really transphobic and, and aggressive attacks that have been uh, very, very hurtful to the very people who were so served by the books that she created. So it's, it's a sort of a double uh, rejection. Yeah. It's painful. It feels like she's writing dystopian fan fiction of her own work. <laughs> yeah, and and it's one of the reasons I'm so glad that from the very beginning of our project, we said this is not about authorial intent. Mm. You know, we don't read these books because we want to understand what J.K. Rowling had to say. We want to read these books because we want to help understand our own lives. And this is maybe an interesting reflection just on what you were saying about the shells. I'm not sure I would necessarily say that there's meaning in the shells or that there's direction in the Harry Mm. Potter books. But it's a the way I think about it is it's like a mirror in which we get to recognize patterns and to see ourselves in a new light or in a new angle to understand our own experience and to understand, you know, even the human condition. And this is, that's probably just my theology. Like I don't necessarily think there's a sort of design or a guidance from elsewhere that's telling us how to live, but there are tools and techniques and religious practices that help us discover perhaps what we already know or how we can learn from wisdom that other people have safeguarded for us. So I don't know, maybe that's a difference between how we think about this. No, yeah, I I, I can see how, I mean, for me, yeah, like the mirroring, the act of mirroring is the meaning. Mm. Oh, I love that. that. Like, and even the willingness to look in the mirror, I would say. Yeah, because that's not easy. (laughs) (laughs) Every day. It's like you start from scratch, right? (laughs) There's there's that daily humiliation, exactly. (laughs) Yes, the debaser. (laughs) Would you, because I know you have some tarot cards with you, Mm -hmm. because I feel like tarot is, is a similar powerful system of offering us these mirrors, these archetypes with which we then get to to understand ourselves in the world. Would you tell us a little bit about how you practice tarot in your own life and your own, maybe even your artistic practice? Yeah, it's been like a um, push and pull. I kind of discovered tarot as a very confused, actually right around the time that I started questioning God, funnily enough. Mm. And uh, it was, you know, some it was this kind of immediate pull and uh, my roommates just saw how obsessed I was with everyone else's decks and gifted me my own. And then one summer I was, I'd, I'd been working in the, the art field and I started to feel like the cards were too opaque and started researching their meanings and trying to apply them to the artistic practice. Mm. So, in, uh, for example, like the Seven of Pentacles is someone weeding a mistletoe tree. Uh, and wow. it's about, you know, letting things grow and cutting the things that are choking your growth. Uh, mm. essentially and then if in and for me that w- meant going into the editing room with my artwork at that point mm. Mm. so you know or like the ace of uh, pentacles being um 
like the uh, financial boon or prosperity for me meant like grant money for an artist. Yeah. So trying to see the archetypes through the lens of today's artist. And actually going through that process helped me to really like fully understand the archetypes and, and the meanings of all of the cards. I started writing about them and giving more and more readings. At some point, I, I realized that people were like kind of hankering for them and that it could be a kind of mm. professional thing that I could do is yes. give people readings and teach people how to read. But I started to find that it was attracting some really um, troubled people. And some really mm. strange energy where it feels like people are testing you. It feel kind of like an unstable energy at, at some point. Mm-hmm. So I took a break and I actually, speaking of ritual, did like I burned a deck. <laughs> wow. Yeah. Oh, that's powerful. It was. Yeah. I have uh, yeah, I have an image of it I, I can share. And I cried. It was very, very painful mm. to do so. And I took a year off. And now coming back to it and doing it in, for charity makes me feel like I'm doing it out of a place of like no ego and not about me seeing it's not about me proving anything to anyone I go into this mode where I'm like well the more I can reveal to this person probably the more money I can get for this charity (laughs) (laughs) I think this is so wise because I think what you're pointing us to is that when you start to engage in these practices in a leadership role there's a whole new level of projection, of challenge that you have to deal with from what other people bring. Mm. And so the maturity, and I think the boundary that you created in your own practice of being like, you know, I will do this and I will lead people, but it's not going to be to benefit me. There's a bigger purpose, you know, around the money that's being raised. I think that's such a beautiful illustration of creating that boundary of safety Mm. and protection, honestly, because there are so many stories of whether it's gurus or priests or, you know, people who essentially end up um, really dangerously, uh, like not in control of the religious power they have, and they do incredible harm. You know what I mean? I, I, so I just really respect. It seems you. like its own addiction. Thank you. Absolutely. So much. Yeah. Absolutely. And, and I, it is I, from a place of privilege, right? Like sometimes you do mm-hmm. go into uh, and, you, and 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 finally the ability to like feel like you can. There's a constant balance between like providing for yourself. And then also providing for the community um, all of the kind of emotional energy that you can muster. I'm sure Mm -hmm. people in in spiritual uh, leadership positions, like in churches, Mm -hmm. must really come up against this, right? Of like burning out, like you're saying with the the whole climate change um, work that you were doing. Finding the the balance between like kind of feeding yourself and feeding your community. Uh, and I, I think I'm finding it. I'm still, you know, people are still asking me like, oh, and then like, so this is just for the time being. And then you'll go back to like making money off of terror, right? Mm. And I'm like, ah, mm-hmm. I don't know. I don't know. It feels, yeah. you, the cards know. I swear the cards mm. know. Like they're just gentle and they're generous. Like I, mm. I see it in the messages that they're sending that they know that they're serving a higher purpose. Gosh. Yeah. Oh, what a beautiful place to end. You know, that serving a higher purpose, that connecting with an inner knowing. I hope people who listen to this have enjoyed the conversation. I know I have, Leon. So thank you yeah, so much. Same here. I, I really gained a lot. So I'm, you're gonna, I'm gonna be mulling it over all, all day. Me too. I'm gonna come visit Kuwait. <laughs> yeah. I mean, not in, not in August. Not right now. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and I'll definitely look you up uh, when next time I'm in Brooklyn. Fantastic. One of my thank you so places. much. Yes, you're always welcome here. Have a nice night. You too.
Wow, these two guys really had fun, Hello. I would say. What are your thoughts, Tim? Oh, I love this. I had, there were several moments when I was listening to it by myself and I just sort of cracked up and just started laughing because they had such great chemistry and they were so funny. Yeah, and at the same time, so um, profound. And I don't know, it was really fascinating. It gave us a lot to think about. It, it's always interesting, the dynamics between the two beautiful minds we bring together, actually. Yeah, this was really... a. Uh, Uh, tango <laughs> was less of a Q&A, right? It was, I think it was really fascinating. I think the one big question that I have is, and that is not resolved, of course, and will not be resolved anytime soon, is with this need for spirituality to re-enter our lives, and especially also our work lives, is that a good thing? Or are people who are worried about the, you know, spirituality being commodified, um, are they rightly worried? So I don't have any final verdict on that but it's just like a thought that i take away from this conversation as well spirituality at the workplace i never thought about it to be honest but if you think about it, i think every company has some rituals and some behaviors and also some core beliefs actually and, and that is in a certain way also maybe a kind of religion i mean think about the people from apple the followership they have that is a kind of new religion so to say But I think what is also interesting when I look in the business context, for example, um, with our company building unit ourselves, we also looked into frameworks, mindsets, etc. And we came across the concept of the beginner's mind. I think we talked about it in the first season already. And the beginner's mind, I think when I tell that people in our conference, it sounds super fresh. And where do you have this from? And it comes actually from Zen Buddhism. So it's pretty old, actually. But that shows actually that we can apply things um, in everyday life, in your professional life, in a company, because I think spirituality, actually, there's a true core in that that can guide you in your behavior and your mindset that is extremely powerful. I agree. Um, I'm thinking about rituals as well. With the House of Beautiful Business, we have quite a few. So we have silent dinners. We have these mystery meetups when people come to the house. Um, we really incorporate several rituals into the experience. And what is so beautiful about rituals is that they make the invisible, not visible, but palpable. You know, you can, you can feel it more or it's more present, I guess, whatever the invisible is, the spiritual or something that is greater than yourself or the, the mystical or whatever word you want to use. But there is fundamentally an insight that what you see is not what you get. There's always more. There's more to it. There's more to it. Maybe that's it. When we talked about Harry Potter, I think what, what you just said came to my mind is I think it creates magic. And I think humans are somehow looking for the mystery and the magic. Because I remember the dinner we had in Lisbon in advance um, of your event last year, actually. And I think I remember there was a discussion about one party wanted to define everything and clarify everything. And the other party, and I was part of that, wanted to stay with the mystery and the magic. And I think my deep conviction is basically people look for magic for things that are not explored yet, because this is by far more attractive and more intriguing than knowing everything in the end. And I think that applies also in business, in your everyday life, in relationships. To that I say, amen. <laughs> okay, then, um, thank you very much for tuning in. I think it was an outstanding episode again of the second season of the Next Visions and House of Beautiful Business podcast. You will find further episodes on every podcasting platform. Thank you very much, Tim Minister. 
<laughs> of the sacred and the profane.